You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Welcome to uh, our second to last week of our Prophets and Kings teaching series. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed being able to dive deeper into the Old Testament, look at the rise and the fall of all of these different kings of Israel. I think we face a lot of similar temptations around power and even idolatry in our lives. So hopefully God has been using this series in your life. But also one of the, the goals of this series is to teach us we need a better king. And that our hearts are longing for and crying out for a better king. And Jesus is that king who came on Christmas. That's what we celebrate there. And uh, so today, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. We're still in our Prophets and Kings series, but really what we focused on is the kings. We've talked about King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Last week, we looked at the divided kingdom, King Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. But for the last two weeks of the series, we're going to look at two VIPs, very important prophets. So we're going to shift gears and we're going to focus on the prophets. And we're going to talk about Elijah today and Elisha next week. And really what I, what I hope to accomplish in these last two weeks of the series is to take our idea of God, what you think about when you think about God, and really expand that picture in your mind. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, what you think Uh, What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think that's very true of us. And I would just ask you that question. There's a famous worship song uh, titled by the name of this question, but how great is our God? How great is our God? And maybe I would ask you to personalize it. How great is your God? When you think about God, how great is he? And that's maybe one of my uh, frustrations with that worship song. The chorus just goes, how great is our God? How great is our God? How great? And it's just a question, right? And I'm just like, tell me. Tell me more about how great he is. Don't, don't just ask me, but, but tell me. And, and really, that's what we see in the lifetime and the ministries of Elijah and Elisha is you see a great God. And sometimes in our lives, we might think that God can weigh in on maybe the spiritual issues or the spiritual matters, but he, does, he can't really help us in our finances. He can't really help me in you know, my marriage or help me in the things that are you know, the important things of my life. And I hope and I pray that us as a church that we can see our God is great. He is big and he is able to handle anything that we're going through. John Woodhouse says it like this, is your God too small? Is your God too small? If so, it is not God who is too small. It is our understanding of him, our confidence in him, our love for him that may not be big enough for modern needs. And I think as a culture, sometimes we kind of think that we've outgrown God. We've got all this technology. We, we've kind of evolved to this point. And we, you know, God is, it's, it's important to have maybe God in your life, but he can't really handle all the modern needs that we deal with today. What I hope you would see today is our God is the God of wonders. He's a God of miracles. He's a God who is powerful, the kind of God that uh, is written about in Psalm 77. This is really a prayer for what I hope to accomplish today. Psalm 77, starting in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember 
your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God, lowercase g, is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made, your, you have made known your might among the peoples. And so today, really what we see in both Elijah and Elijah in their ministries is we see the God of, of wonders, the God who performs many miracles. And hopefully this can take maybe even uh, the box that maybe we formed in our mind for God and expand our picture, expand our perspective. And I would just ask you that question. Don't you want to see God work wonders? Do you want to see God work wonders in your family, with your children? Do you want to see God work wonders in our city? in our time? Do you want to see God do amazing things in our day as he has done in days gone by? Do you? I'll just ask you, do you? Then we need to believe that God is the God who works wonders. And we have to take this small perspective we have, and we we have to see God for who he truly is. And that's what Elijah is going to teach us today. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Kings chapter 16. That's where we'll be starting off, 16 through 18 today. That's our our passages. And uh, really, just a quick recap is we're jumping ahead a little bit in the story. And just to summarize the rest of the, the, the narrative of the kings is we really spent a lot of time in the first few kings of Israel. And for the remaining time of the divided kingdom of Israel, there are about 20 kings in the northern kingdom of Israel and about 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the northern kingdom, there were zero good kings for 20 bad kings. So that's a really bad batting average, by the way. You don't want to score it. Or if you're you're doing a spelling test in elementary school and you bring it home and you're like, look, mom and dad, I got zero out of 20 words spelled correctly. It's not good. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there were eight. There were at least eight decent, maybe good kings out of 20. And they sparked revival and renewal in their day. And the king that we're going to be looking at today during the ministry of Elijah is a king named Ahab. This is about 50 years after the sin of Jeroboam. And there's already been a lot of turmoil in the northern kingdom. There's already been an assassination, assassination, a suicide. There's, there's just a lot of turmoil. It's not as clear-cut as it was in the southern kingdom of Judah, where primarily it was the lineage of David. The descendants of David would take the crown and they would be the new king. There's all this tumult and and turmoil in the northern kingdom. And then Ahab shows up as the king. His father Omri previously was the worst king of Israel. Look at what it says about Ahab in 1 Kings 16 verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So he's literally the worst king ever. He's the worst king ever. And specifically, one of the things that made him one of the worst kings was actually his wife, Jezebel. He married Jezebel. She was from Sidon, which is outside of Israel. And she loved Baal, the Canaanite god Baal. And so Ahab, he's, he, he doesn't even seem very strong-willed or like a very strong personality. And it's almost like Queen Jezebel is this evil queen that makes the evil queens in Disney movies look like Disney princesses, honestly. And I, I don't say that lightly. I've got little girls. We tried watching Snow White one time. You have to fast forward through so much of Snow White when you have a three-year-old. You're like, that evil, no, like that's going to give me nightmares, right? And Jezebel, is, she seriously is so incredibly wicked, and Ahab marries her, and he does essentially 
anything she tells them to do. And so they take Baal worship and they, they create Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom at this point in history, as this epicenter of Baal worship. And they're, they're, they're spreading idolatry and worshiping this pagan god all throughout the land. And what we're going to see Elijah do is Elijah's ministry and many of the prophets' ministry is a ministry of trying to bring the people back to God trying to call out idolatry and rebellion and and give the people an opportunity to come back to God. And what we're going to see today, we're going to frame it like this. There's five different kinds of miracles that we're going to see Elijah be able to do. So if you have notes, if you like taking notes, you can write down a list of one through five. We're going to look at five different categories of miracle and what each one of those miracles teaches us about who God is. And the first miracle that we see is the miracle of a drought. And this is a miracle of judgment, is what it teaches us. And that might be a little bit shocking for us, or shocking for your perspective of God, because we love talking about, when we talk about the God who works wonders, we're like, okay, what is is God going to provide for me? How can God heal me? What can God do to bless me? And what we don't always realize is God's miraculous power is sometimes a miracle of judgment to wake us up and to bring us back to him. And so what happens is Elijah shows up on the scene out of nowhere. We know nothing about him until 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, and this is what happens when he shows up. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Everyone says lives. That's a very, very important word. If you have a Bible and you're taking notes, you can underline that word, lives. Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What we have to understand here is that Baal, the God who is being worshipped in Israel at this point in time, is the Canaanite God of rain. He's the Canaanite God of rain. And rain meant life. That's really what it meant. I mean, did anyone notice when the Amazon servers went down last week? Anyone notice that? Right? The Amazon server, certain websites who use their web services, for some of you, they're like, what? What's Amazon? No, anyways, they went down, and it was, a, it was actually kind of a major inconvenience for me because our church uh, management software is on Amazon web services, and so it was down for a whole day. So if I wanted to look up uh, your phone number, I couldn't find it because the system was down, right? And uh, so anyways, we live in a digital age. And for us, we notice if there's a power outage. We notice if a, a web server goes down or whatever is happening behind the scenes and the mainframes or whatever, right? We notice that. In the ancient world, it was an agrarian society. Rain equals life. If rain does not come for a season, then there's not enough plants. The animals can't eat the plants. The animals are dying. The people that, so there's a food shortage. Everything was dependent on rain. So you can see what an important pagan god Baal would be. And actually, in their belief system, what they believed is that Baal brought the rain, and then every year there was another Canaanite god named Mot who would defeat Baal, and then that would usher in the dry season. And then later on that same year, Baal would come back, right? Baal would show up once again. We got things, we got a little marching band going on outside. (laughs) Baal would come back. And it would be the rainy season again. And so what's happening here is when Elijah challenges Ahab with a drought, he's doing two things. Number one, he's saying your worldview about Baal and Ma and this whole system, it's, it's not true. 
It's garbage. And he challenges the dominant worldview of the society at that cultural moment. And the second thing he says is, your God does not live. My God lives. And he's going to prove it by showing dominance, by preventing the rain from coming for years. And in fact, what happens is earlier in Kings, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon, King Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, warns about this. In 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So what Solomon says, and he knows that this will happen, that the people will be, their hearts will be turned from God. But what happens is he says, when the rain stops, what that's, what's happening there is you have an opportunity to cry out to God for forgiveness. And what we don't always realize is that God punishes us as an opportunity for repentance. I'll say it again, because this is, this is really important that we understand. Punishment is an opportunity for repentance. God does not delight in punishing his creation. It doesn't bring him joy to punish us in our lives. He punishes us like a good father does to discipline us and bring us back to him. I mean, otherwise, if the punishment was just about the punishment, then why even send Elijah? Why not just withhold rain from the land and we'll see if the people figure it out for themselves? But what God does is he tells Ahab through the prophet Elijah, you have sinned, here's the punishment, and then there's this, what are you going to do about it? Will you repent? And Ahab sadly does not repent in this moment. And so what happens is we might, we might mistake in our lives God's grace or his mercy or his patience as indifference for our sins, as lenience for our sins. And the reality is we have to recognize, yes, God is gracious and mercy and God is love, but he's also holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is also the perfect, righteous judge. And Paul in Romans, which there's some beautiful passages in Romans about God's grace and his mercy. Paul in Romans says this in Romans 2, 3 through 4. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and he's just gotten done talking about a bunch of different sins, a list of sins, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, which are all attributes of God, those are all true attributes of God. Do you suppose that because those things are true, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, everyone say it, repentance. repentance. God does not long for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, for people to turn back to him. And so when God disciplines us, sometimes through the own, our own consequences from the sins in our lives, because sin does not lead to flourishing. It leads to destruction and death in our lives. It's actually to draw us back to him. And just because we're not seeing an immediate consequence for wrongdoing in our lives does not mean that God is lenient or indifferent about those sins in our lives. So here's our practice. This is a difficult practice. 
Turn back to God before it's too late. This is my rephrasing of the gospel message that Jesus Christ himself preached during his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is saying, God's kingdom is here. Turn back to God before it is too late. And for some, too late might mean reaping the the consequences of your sins, actually experiencing in your lifetime, like Ahab saw God's disciplinary correction, the drought, the miracle of judgment that Ahab experienced. And I would just say to you, even if you're a follower of Jesus, if there's unrepented sin in your life, there's still consequences for that sin that you might experience. Turn back to God for whatever those ways are in your life that you're disobeying him, you're not following his law. And for others, too late might mean final judgment where every single person on planet earth will stand face to face with Jesus Christ one day. And it will truly be too late at that point in time. And I would just say to you, I'm, I don't say any of, I say this somberly, I say this not to try and manipulate or twist anyone into, to scare you into becoming a Christian. I say this because this is a very real aspect of who God is. And I want, I want to speak a somber warning in the same way that Elijah spoke that warning to Ahab. Would you turn back to God and understand that God is rich in mercy and he will forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from any unrighteousness? That's the first miracle. Probably not our favorite miracle, is it? miracle of judgment. The second miracle is a miracle of food. And what the miracle of food teaches us about God's characters, it teaches us that he is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the great provision that God provides in our lives. What happens is Elijah speaks this pronouncement of judgment to King Ahab, and then he goes away, and he goes into hiding. Because if he shows his face back in Israel, likely he will be executed Right? Maybe Ahab and Jezebel didn't think that the judgment was very serious until the first rainy season it didn't rain. And then the second year it didn't rain again. And all of a sudden they're worried. The animals are dying. People are dying because of the drought. Where is Elijah? Right? That, that, that's their feeling in this moment. So Elijah goes to a brook east of Jordan, a small body of water, and there he suffers alongside the people. Do you catch that? He's not in a palace. He's not living the life of luxury while the people are suffering. This judgment is hitting him, that he's hungry, that he is in hiding at this brook east of the Jordan. And God provides this miracle in a miraculous way. Look at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 6. And the ravens brought him bread. Isn't that amazing? And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Imagine that, a bird giving you your happy meal for the day. (laughs) And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So Elijah is there for a certain amount of days. He's, He's in hiding. He's alone. He's isolated. And he's just counting on God's goodness, similar to the Israelites in the wilderness, the manna from heaven and the quail, right? And he's, he's literally receiving his food daily from these birds that God sends to provide for his every need. But then the water, even where he's at, dries up. And in this moment, there's a few options. I mean, if God can provide food in a miraculous way, who's to say that God can't provide water in a miraculous way? I mean, didn't God do that in the wilderness with the Israelites as well? Water from the rock to feed the thirsty people. But God doesn't do that for Elijah. 
And then the next logical thing is maybe Elijah could just go away from the brook where he's at and he can go to the Jordan River, which is just a few miles away. The Jordan River hasn't dried up. Just go to the, the closest source of water. But God doesn't send him there. God sends Elijah over 100 miles west, all the way to near the Mediterranean Sea, to Sidon, which is the homeland of Jezebel, the evil queen. He sends him into enemy territory to visit a widow in the town of Zarephath. And in Zarephath, Elijah gets there, and the, the journey would have been treacherous. He's not supposed to show his face, so he's in hiding as he travels on foot all the way across the nation, and he's also very thirsty. Food is scarce. It was a, a dangerous journey, to say the least. And he shows up in Zarephath, and he sees this woman outside the gate, and she's picking up sticks. And he thinks, maybe this is the woman. He has just a, a feeling or a sense about it. And he goes to the woman to, to test, to see if she is the woman that God said would provide for his needs. She goes up, he goes up, and he asks for a cup of water. Now, that seems like a very simple request, right? We have, turn on the tap, there's water, right? He asks for water in a what? In a drought. It's actually a pretty big request. Do you have any water, right? So he asks her, and she's willing to give him some. That's a great sign. And then he says, as she's on her way to go get the water to give to him, he says, oh, and by the way, could you also bring me a snack? Could I get some bread from you as well? And her response clues us in that her situation is far more dire than we realize. In 1 Kings 17, verse 12, and she said, as the Lord your God lives, there it is again, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. So this woman, at first glance, she's a widow. She's going to provide for Elijah's needs. Maybe Elijah's heart, he's starting to put the pieces together. Why would God send me over 100 miles away? And God has mercy even on this pagan woman who somehow, I, I believe, probably from the judgment, word got around. Why isn't it raining? Why isn't it raining in the land? Wasn't there a prophet who said something about, you know, until he said the word that his God would stop the rain? And even this woman in Zarephath believes that now Yahweh is the God who lives. And he gives, she gives at least credit to Elijah's God. It's, he's not her God yet, but your God surely lives. And Elijah says, I still want a snack. Even after he realizes how dire, how big this, this calling on her life is, I think this is what it teaches us. Often God's calling is beyond our ability. Not always, but often what God, the thing that God calls us to do for him, that the thing that God calls us to do to serve him, to be generous to his kingdom, the thing that God's leading us to, it's not Here's everything you need and more. Now use a little bit of it for my kingdom. It's here's the calling. How in the world are you going to do that? God's calling is beyond our ability. He calls us to incredible things. In fact, for the very purpose of being dependent on him. For the very purpose. If God calls us to just use what we already had, there's no growth, there's no faith, there's no dependence required to say yes to what he's leading us to. But often God's calling is beyond our ability. And so for us, the practice is to trust God, especially when it doesn't make sense. Not trust God even when it doesn't make sense, but trust God especially when it doesn't make sense. 
to trust God, to depend on God, to lean in in those big callings he has because that is when we start to see miracles. That's when we start to see the mighty hand of the Lord. That's when we start to really see the God who works wonders. And in this situation, that's exactly what the woman sees. To her credit, she says yes. I mean, can you imagine this? She's been starving for days. She has just enough for one last meal. She's believing that her and her young son are going to die if they don't get some food. And she actually bakes Elijah his meal first. She makes it for him. She gives it to him. And she, I, you can imagine her like holding her son, thinking, I guess that's it. I guess our last meal that we had was our last meal. And we didn't realize it at the time. And Elijah says, go back and check the jug of oil and check the jar of flour. And she goes back. She's like, that's weird. There's more. And she bakes a meal. And as many days as through the rest of the drought, every time this woman goes back to check the oil and to check the flour, there's always enough. I want to tell you something about our God. There is always enough with our God. This is what Jesus spoke to us when we were worried about our physical lives. Jesus, in Matthew 6, said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus doesn't say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you'll be a millionaire. He doesn't say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you'll get everything you want in this world. He says, all these things will be added to you. God will take care of you. And it reminds me of the way Jesus taught us to pray, where we ask God to give us our daily bread. And that's what the widow had. Every day, she had her daily bread with her son. And for Elijah, when he had the bread and the meat, every day, he had just enough for that day. And God promises to be the God who provides for our every need. And the woman gets to experience this ongoing miracle. Isn't that amazing? A daily provision from a God where there is always enough because she said yes in obedience to what God was calling her first to sacrifice and to give for the sake of his kingdom, which is amazing. Here's a side note, though. I want to address this before we go on. I think it's an important enough side note is, is this idea of why did God send Elijah to Zarephath to begin with? Why didn't he just do the water from the rock? Why didn't he just send him to the Jordan River? And I think it's this idea that God cares about the outsiders. Have you noticed that about God? He cares about the outsiders. In fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter four, this is amazing, Jesus cites this story from 1 Kings 17. When Jesus is on the Sabbath in a synagogue, he stands up in Nazareth, his hometown. He grew up in, and he reads this scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, these words are fulfilled in your midst. Those prophecies, guess who they're about? They're about me, that's what Jesus is saying. And you know what the people in the audience are thinking? Nah. <laughs> they don't believe it. Now, aren't you Joseph and Mary's son, right? They don't, they don't believe it. And this is where Jesus says these famous words about a prophet not being accepted in his hometown. But look at the example he cites. This is Luke 4, verses 24 through 26. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, Think about how many other people in Israel were struggling during the three and a half year drought. There are many widows in Israel. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to how many of them? To none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. 
the point that Jesus is making, and even through Luke, who has a special emphasis in his gospel on Jesus caring for the oppressed, caring for the outsiders, Jesus going to the one, even though the 99 are at home. That's only recorded in Luke's gospel, the parable of the prodigal son. So what can we learn about this? If God is a God of the outsiders, here's our practice. Go beyond your borders. Go beyond your borders. This isn't to say that we don't care about our friends, our family members, our, even our church community. We certainly do. We want to love one another, but we have to always be mindful of the outsider the person who's outside of that circle. So I would just challenge you to consider who are, who are the people beyond your borders in your life? Maybe beyond your borders isn't 100 miles away in Zarephath. Maybe it's across the street to the neighbor that you still don't know their name yet. Who are the people that you can invite into your circle, invite around your dinner table? And I would say a great opportunity we have in less than two weeks, it's hard to even believe, Christmas is less than two weeks away. Did you realize that? you're like, what? It's December, right? It's less than two, two weeks away is our Christmas Eve worship gatherings provide an, oppor- uh, an evangelistic opportunity that we only see once each year, that people like, like singing Christmas carols, right? Even if they don't go to church, even if they don't maybe even believe in God yet. And we know those Christmas carols are all worship songs, but they, they would love to come and just be a part of, you know, the holiday cheer or whatever. And you have an opportunity to go beyond your borders and invite someone with you to Christmas Eve. And that would be my challenge. I, I really hoped we have over, we have a thousand invite cards. They're in Boise at a FedEx location. But, so they're not here today. They'll be here tomorrow by 2.20 p.m. apparently. But next Sunday... Next Sunday, we will have Christmas Eve invite cards, but it's not just an invite card. You can, you can invite someone, you can, text, you can text them, you can have a conversation with someone, you can share a social media link online and just say, who wants to come to Christmas Eve? But I would say that personal conversation is much more powerful than someone even scrolling past you know, a generic post from a church on, on Facebook. That personal invitation, I would love for you to sit next to me on Christmas Eve. And if each of us would go beyond your borders, don't just, I mean, sure, invite the people who you know already want to come, but go beyond your borders this year in an an evangelistic kind of way where you look for opportunities like the widow of Zarephath, someone who who maybe even sees themselves as an outsider, and then eventually they start to see maybe your God is the living God, and maybe your God who's the living God becomes their God that they worship. All right, back to 1 Kings, the the third miracle that we see is a miracle of life. And what this teaches us is it teaches us that there is no situation too far gone for God. God is a God of hope. And whatever you're going through or, 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 or however the disaster looks from the outside, that God is greater than whatever those things are. And in this moment, what happens is day by day, the woman and her son and Elijah, who's living with them now, they're provided for. And it's this beautiful moment, not just of provision, but even relationally. You have to imagine that Elijah becomes like the father that is missing from the life of this child, right? Where this boy, in some ways, maybe even he starts to view him as his own son. And what happens is completely devastating. You know, they're provided for, every meal is taken care of, and then the little boy, maybe he's a toddler, maybe he's younger, he gets sick and he dies. And you have to imagine the heartbreak of this mother, but she's there, and she looks at Elijah, and she's like, is that, 
why you came to my household? Look at her response to Elijah in 1 Kings 17, uh, verse 18. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? He's like, is this why God brought you here? To provide for us? To get my, my son healthy and alive again just so he could die? Can you see the heartbreak that this mama is feeling in her life? And what she doesn't realize is that God is a God of hope, even in the most hopeless of situations. And we take this a little bit for granted in our modern day, especially with you know, Christianity. We, we talk about Easter as Resurrection Sunday. And we know that's something that God can do and will do. And yet at this point in time, in the biblical narrative, guess how many examples of raising someone back to life there are? Zero. It has never happened in the biblical story at this point in time. And so this woman, I mean, and for her, she's living outside of the kingdom of Israel. She does, you know, she's very new to this whole God thing. She, there's no hope in the situation. I mean, what, what hope is there for life after death? What Elijah does is he says to this weeping mother who's holding her dead son, he says, give him to me. And he takes him in his arms and he goes upstairs and he lays across his body three different times. And maybe he's even weeping as he's doing this, right? Heartbreaking for this mother. And he just says this simple line, oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. It's just a simple prayer. And the boy starts to breathe again and he's alive And he comes back downstairs with the living child. And this is what the woman says in response in verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Maybe we can even capitalize it. Capital T, truth. Right? How do we know that Jesus' claims to be the way, the truth, and the life are reality? Well, he predicted that he would die, and three days later, raised from the dead. And if somebody can pull that off, maybe we should go with what he has to say. That the, re- the resurrection power of God validates the truth of the gospel. It validates Jesus' claims to be able to forgive our sins and lead us into a life that is life to the full. See, death is the final enemy still to be defeated, and, and the problem of death is so, it's so difficult because it comes for us all. Death will come for us all. But that's why the good news of the gospel is so extensive is because the life that Jesus offers is for all. That none should perish, but that anyone who comes to him, who believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I would just say this, our God is the God who lives He is the living God, and he is the only way to offer us life even after death. That's why the hope of Christianity, the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus is so potent and powerful that in John 11, in another resurrection story, the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus says to Martha, the the weeping sister of Lazarus, the one who believes in me will live even though they die even though they die, that there is resurrection power to the gospel. And I would say to you, if you don't have the hope of the gospel in your life, today can be the day you say yes to Jesus and you experience hope even in the darkest of situations. 
Today can be the day that you ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And I want to invite you to make that decision to get baptized. Baptism is a beautiful symbol of dying, going under the water, dying to the old life, and allowing God to raise you up into a new life in him. And if you're at the point today where you believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God, and you're ready to take him as your Lord and Savior, and you've never been baptized, I want to invite you to sign up for baptism. We kind of have a backlog of people who've signed up, and uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to make a date. January 2nd, the baptistry will be done by January 2nd. It better be. Okay. And, uh, and, and I can't think, and if that's you, maybe you would say, I want to start off the new year with, with a new life in Christ. And you can sign up to get baptized on our website, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. You can sign up on a connect card. We'd love to walk alongside you and pray with you. We've got prayer team members here today. We'd love to pray with you along that step of faith. That's the third miracle. I think personally that's the, the best one, miracle of life. All right, miracle number four. We're going to have to cruise through these last two. This fourth one is the miracle of fire, and it demonstrates God's power. This is, we'll, we'll go pretty quick through this one because it's the most popular, most well-known miracle during Elijah's life. And also, I preached on it if you were here back in March 2020, or, or somewhere in the spring of 2020 in our Into the Wilderness series, I preached on uh, this passage, 1 Kings chapter 18. But, but essentially, while Elijah is with the widow, after the son is raised from the, the dead, God sends Elijah back to Ahab, and he says, it's time. It's time for the people to repent. It's time for the rain to come back in the land. And God sends him back to Ahab, and before there is forgiveness, there has to be Repentance. And so now there's going to be a showdown between Elijah, representing Yahweh, and the prophets of Baal. And what happens is Elijah goes to the people, and this is in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, and there's an assembly of people that are going to be gathered on Mount Carmel, and this is what he says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. What did the people say? And the people did not answer him a word. So the people aren't sure. They, on one hand, they like kind of want to be God's people. On the other hand, they're worshiping Baal, and their lives don't look like they're God's people. And, and Elijah says, you can't serve two masters. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't, you can't have God as, as your master and Baal or the world or the whatever, fill in the blank, right? He says, pick one. And the people are silent. They don't know. They are not repentant at this point in time. So what Elijah does, he says, there's going to be a showdown. And he takes 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, which is Baal's uh, female consort. So a, a two pa pagan Canaanite, god, a god and a goddess. So there's 850 prophets representing the pagan Canaanite religion. And there's Elijah, the one lone prophet of God. And on top of Mount Carmel, they're going to have this challenge. And the challenge was... For the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they're going to build this altar, and they're going to prepare a sacrifice on top of it, and they're going to ask their God to light the sacrifice on fire, and whichever, whichever God answers, that's the living God. That's the true God. And so first, Elijah says, listen, here's a, here's a courtesy. You go first. They're like, okay. So they're, they're, all these prophets, they're getting you know, the sacrifice, the, the altar built, the sac and they're looking for like firewood that's like really dry. You know, like just a spark will light it up. You know, they're trying to like make it as easy as possible. And then it's, it's built, the sacrifice is prepared, and they, they cry out to God, to their God, nothing happens. 
And so they yell louder. Nothing happens. And they start dancing around and doing all their weird voodoo witchcraft stuff. Nothing happens. They start mutilating themselves. Nothing happens. And Elijah even starts trash talking them. He's like, maybe Baal is like in the bathroom. I don't know. Does he use the ba- Does your God use the bathroom? I, I don't know. Maybe he's there. And the, it's like driving them crazy. And the people, like the Israelites are watching this. King Ahab is on Mount Car- Carmel. He's watching this. And it's like, a dis- it's a disappointment, quite frankly. And it says, there was no word, there was no voice, no one answered. It's a pretty clear point, is it not? So then it's Elijah's turn. And he builds the altar. And he, he, he constructs it in an interesting way. He digs like a moat around it. And then he's like, let's get th- three different times massive jugs of water and just drench the altar and drench the firewood. Let's just make it as hard as possible for God to come through. And he prepares the sacrifice and he gets his thing all ready. And then he doesn't dance around. He's not mutilating himself by any means. And then this is his simple prayer in verse 36 of 1 Kings 18. And at that time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It's all about repentance. God's power is there to prove to people that he is the one true living God to bring their hearts back to him. And Elijah doesn't even say amen. And all of a sudden, fire falls from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice. It evaporates the water. It consumes even the rocks that the altar was built out of are disintegrated. And this is what happens. The people respond. Verse 39, and when the people saw it, They fell on their faces and said, let's all read this together. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Notice they were silent before and now they know. Now they know the Lord is God. He has just proven himself to us. Elijah's name, interestingly enough, means my God is Yahweh or Yahweh is God. The Lord is God, essentially. And Elijah knows it, but now the people who've witnessed this powerful miracle know it. So what's the practice for us? The practice for us is if the Lord is God, follow him. And I didn't make that line up. That's literally a quote from 1 Kings 18, where Elijah says, if if the Lord is God, follow him. Follow him. And I would just say to you, does your life show that you believe the Lord is God? That you believe God is real, he's alive, he's active, he's powerful. And if that's true, follow him. God is alive, so live for him. Spend your life living your life for him. Obey him, listen to his word, follow him in your life. That's genuinely what God is trying to do in our souls, is to get us to follow him. That's the fifth miracle of fire, or the fourth miracle of fire, the fifth one, the last one, is the miracle of rain. The miracle of rain teaches us the forgiveness that God offers us in our lives. Remember that the drought was the judgment. The rain means forgiveness. The rain means the people have repented. And Elijah knows there can be no forgiveness without repentance. 
that repentance opens the gateway for God's love. Think about rain and water and the rushing flood of God's grace and his mercy in our lives. And at this point, there's been repentance, and Elijah knows the rain's coming. And he actually says to Ahab, and there's even an inkling that maybe Ahab is starting to repent at this point, because Elijah executes all 850 prophets, which is kind of a gory detail, but it's true. He executes the prophets, and Ahab is there, and he lets him do it. Ahab's like, cool, I guess we're not following Baal anymore. I'll check with Jezebel when I get home. He checks with her. She's like, no, we're still following Baal. He's like, oh, my mistake, right? Well, over 800 prophets are now dead, right? And he, like, he's very much like this kind of spineless, no backbone guy. Anyways, so Elijah is there, and he tells Ahab, I hear the rushing of the rain. He can hear God's forgiveness before it even shows up. And what happens is Elijah bows down. This is, this is so important for us to read. He, he bows down and he prays that God would send the rain. Remember, he said, there will be no, no dew, no, not a drop of rain until I say the word. Elijah is like, I'm saying the word, God. The people have repented. It's time for the rain. This is what it says in 1 Kings 18.43. And he said to his servant, he's already bowed down on the ground and prayed. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So they've got a good vantage point from Mount Carmel of the Mediterranean Sea. And he went up and looked and said, pivotal moment, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. The reason why I want to kind of pause here for just a moment is what happened just like a couple hours earlier when Elijah prayed for fire. He wasn't even done speaking and fire fell from heaven immediately. And then here, the prophet of God, who has a promise from God that God would send the rain to forgive the people's sins. The people have repented. Forgiven, it's time for forgiveness. He prays, there's nothing. And I think what this detail is included is to teach us just because God did something one way at one time does not mean he's bound to do it that way for the rest of time. And I think so often we can compare our lives and our prayers, and really it even reduces our picture of God. Well, Elijah prayed and fire fell. I prayed and that person passed away. Elijah prayed, it was immediate. I prayed and I feel like I'm starving to death and I can't pay my bills next month. And we can, we can so easily look at that and we can give up. We can say, I guess God doesn't care. I guess God's not powerful enough. And I think this is included as a contrast for us, that just because Elijah prayed that first time for rain and nothing happened, does that mean that God wasn't going to send the rain? Does that mean that God wasn't able to send the rain? Does that mean that God was not going to forgive the people? And Elijah says, no, I have the promise from God. I know that God's going to send the rain. I know he's going to forgive our sins and heal our land. And so when the servant says, no rain yet, guess what Elijah says? Let me pray one more time. Bows down, prays, go check. Servant goes, he checks, no rain. Not giving up on this. Praise seven times. Elijah prays. And this is what happens on the seventh time in verse 44. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud. Everyone hold up, hold up your hand like this. Like if, if there was a cloud and you held up your hand, it would cover the cloud. That's what it means. The size of a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah knows that at this moment, God's forgiveness is real. And God is going to heal the people. He's going to heal 
the land. And, and, and years later, James, the brother of Jesus, would refer back not to the fire that Elijah prayed for, but the rain that Elijah prayed for as an example for us in how we pray. In James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. Some translations say Elijah was just a human like us, but he prayed. And if you want to see the God who works wonders, work wonders in your life, if you want to see the people in, in your life who don't know Jesus experience the forgiveness and the cleansing reign of God's mercy and grace in their lives, here's our practice. You ready for it? Keep praying fervently. Keep praying fervently. Stop that comparison game. Well, Elijah prayed for fire. The example we're called to follow is his prayer for rain. On your knees, on the ground, God said nothing, I'm, keeping, I'm gonna keep praying. God hasn't answered yet, I'm gonna keep praying. And you're gonna keep praying in faith. Sometimes we, we use these words, prayer works, which it, it does, I guess, but the reality is God works. The only reason prayer works is because God works and he's the living God and he hears us when we pray. And so we keep praying fervently. Our faith is not in our prayer. Our faith is not because I said the right magic formula or I prayed the right way. Our faith is in our God, is alive and active. And so God works when we pray. And I hope that today you would, you would have that picture of God in your mind, that he is the God who works wonders. And that you would stay, stay persistent in prayer, faithful in prayer, and that we would keep praying fervently that God would move in our time. That you would see people in your life come to know who Jesus is. That we would see renewal and revival in the days Ahead. Let's stand as we worship our God who works wonders. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.